Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Um, the chance to continue Acts uh, and see how this early church is experiencing this new thing called the church. Uh, they are uh, gathered together. Christ gave them their commission. He gave them the Holy Spirit, and now uh, they are alive, and it is running, and there are believers coming to faith but as we look at Acts chapter 4, we are going to see proclaiming Christ in adversity and rejection and persecution. It's going to be the beginning of what becomes very hard for the church. And yet the church continues to flourish. And I think we can take hope and encouragement and even boldness from this passage that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 4. Now when I preach... Uh, in the last seven years, being part of the Bridge Church, it has been the greatest of honors for me to be part of this church. I have felt like every Sunday that I've preached, every Saturday that when we were doing the Saturday service, there is, without fail, I have always felt like I am on home court advantage. I feel like I'm preaching to those who are encouraging me, who, are, who love me, and I love them, and we look at the, God's Word together, and it seems... It's encouraging to me to be among brothers. and Even if my sermon isn't all that great, people will come up afterwards and say, hey, give it a try next week. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's nice to be around people that are cheering you on, hoping, hoping your joke is funny, you know, or whatever. It's really fun. And I, I know the Bears are, uh, later on today are going to have home field advantage. I don't know how much that's going to help them, but they're going to have home field advantage. Go Bears. The, yeah, Go Bears. The church begins, to some degree, with home field advantage. There is a favor among the people that is evident in Acts 3 and Acts 2, and, and people are looking at it favorably. There's some tension, but for the most part, the sermons that we've heard so far in Acts have been delivered in the context of people who want to hear them People who are waiting with anticipation, they were both in the, in the uh, proximity to miracles. In, in Acts chapter 2, when the, the, the Spirit descended, there was this miraculous sign, the rushing of wind. Peter gives a sermon. Everybody wants to know what's going on. They want to hear what Peter has to say. To re-preach that sermon today, the way that it's written in Acts, it may not have the same effect that it did then. Right then, in the power of the Spirit, with people excited to hear the message, it flourished. And then in Acts chapter 3, we saw this miracle of a, a man who was lame for over 40 years, being able to not only get up, but to jump with joy. And they gather together in Solomon's portico on the temple, and people are all gathered around, and a ton of people come to Christ again. And we're going to see that in chapter 4. This passage in chapter 4 is the continuation of that as the culture begins to be hostile towards the church. And we might think that when the culture becomes hostile towards the church, that Christians are run for the hills, that less people will want to be Christians, that people want to go to church when it's easy and when it's 
not persecuted and when it's not difficult. When the reality is, if you know anything about church history, the church exploded in conflict, in persecution. It almost was as if, if it cost you more to be a Christian, people were more apt to become believers. They were more apt to lean in and say, okay, it's, it's going to cost me that much. Instead of bartering, okay, I'm willing to give you Sunday mornings and they're like, if I, if I do this, this could cost me my livelihood. It could cost me my family. I'm in. And the church grew. God builds the church in a hostile culture. There's a lot of verses here, so we're going to go through it somewhat quickly, uh, spending most of our time in the first point. Proclaiming Christ in adversity, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4 of Acts. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came, up, came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Proclaiming Christ in adversity. What does it look like? Well, verse 1 begins with, As they were speaking to the people. If you go back to last week and you remember from chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple and they go through the gate called Beautiful and at the edge of the gate they find a man who has been crippled, who's begging for some money. And they in turn say, I have no money to give you, but what I give you I can do in the name of Jesus. And they heal him. God heals him by the power of Jesus and he is so healed that ankles that have not been used and legs that have not been used are used as if he was a young man. There's a guy in his 40s and he's leaping and jumping around on the Temple Mount. And as they go to their normal spot in Solomon's portico on the temple to teach the Christians their place where they do church, they gather there and the Christians all gather around and then all of the people that just heard of this miracle come over to that side of the temple. So here we are on this big temple mount and there's this gathering of people and Peter preaches and people get saved. It's a really exciting story. And while they're meeting, you know, that was at three o'clock in the afternoon when he healed him. And as the day wanes on, maybe it's been an hour, maybe it's been three hours, but there's been a, a length of time that they've been gathering where 
what we hadn't known is that the leaders of the temple are trying to figure out how to get him to shut up. They've been gathering together until they have a group of people that are going to come before them. And that's what happens in verse 1. And they were speaking. Who are the they? Peter and John. They're up there speaking before this group that are coming to Christ and listening to the stories of Jesus. And remember, this is just weeks after Jesus was killed. Weeks after he was raised from the dead. I don't think it's lost on the disciples that this is a dangerous place to preach Christ. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So who are these people, the priests and the captain of the temple? Well, the priests were responsible for the temple. And specifically, there was a 200-person priest team that were like soldiers for the temple to keep peace on the temple. They not only represented Yahweh and temple order, where people are allowed to go and where people aren't allowed to go, they represented Rome to a degree because you weren't allowed to have gatherings that would incite rebellion. So these 200 priests, and I don't know how many of them come at this point, but there's a gathering of 200 that are the police force of the, of the temple. The second named one here is the captain of the temple. He is second in command of keeping order in the temple after the high priest, and he's the one who heads up the 200 priests. So you've got a pretty good team coming so far. They're not coming over one guy hears and he's going to say, Psst, you shouldn't say this. They're coming in force. They're coming in a way that they're expecting the disciples to be afraid. They're expecting people to disband and people to say, I'm not going to be, I'm not with them. I don't know those guys and I don't know this Jesus. They're used to people being afraid of them. And finally, the Sadducees, they were the priests who were rulers. They were the aristocrats. They had power. They had prominence. They had the clothes to show it. And they come up as representing part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling class people. They come up and they, they come in force to question. Now I want you to know when they come to question, they're not coming there with a, a notepad thinking they're going to learn. They're coming there with a notepad, who are they going to write down that's failing? With the expectation that they're going to judge Peter and John for what's happening. But they have this guy in front of this that's leaping and jumping that everybody knows he was healed. It's a bit of a problem. And people like Peter and John right now. Like, these guys, as much as they're coming up with this force to be impressive, they're also afraid of what the people might think of them. So this is a touchy situation. They took their time. And while they took their time, the apostles kept preaching the gospel and people kept getting saved. Verse 2, it says how they came. This, the, the, uh, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came greatly annoyed. Can you picture that? They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus in the resurrection from the dead. I mean, they were expecting killing Jesus was going to be the end of this. 
And they're a little ticked off that now they're preaching that Jesus rose from the dead and they're still dealing with Jesus. So verse 3, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So this is later in the day. This story starts at 3 in the afternoon. Maybe it's 5 or 6. Summertime in Israel, it's 7 or 8 o'clock that the sun goes down. The Sanhedrin aren't meeting, so they put them in jail. Don't imagine this is jail like Mayberry. Don't imagine that this is a nice place where you get three square meals and they're going to be pleasant and give you visitors. This is jail in the first century, and jail in the first century did not have a high survival rate if you stayed there long. It was a nasty place to go. So here they are put in jail for the night. They're arrested. And they have all night to consider how they're going to respond when they're called to give an account for why they're doing what they're doing. Remember, this is the same guy. Peter is the same guy who denied Jesus just weeks earlier because he was afraid in front of a young girl. He's in front of a young girl and he can't admit that he knows Jesus. But now in the power of the Spirit, this is a new guy. So I don't know what their conversations were. I don't know how they praised God. I don't know what they prayed. We'll see what the Christians pray by the end of this sermon. But they're arrested and they're put into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now there's three different ways to read this. It's not terribly important. But this could be 5,000 men received Christ that day. It could be men in the terms of humanity, and it could be 5,000 people received Christ that day, or it could be either of those are now, that's the total number in the church. And we don't really have clarity in the Greek on this. So it's not important, but either way, it's been a good day for the gospel. It's been pretty exciting to see what God's doing on this temple mount. And as they are carried away into Adversity, they must have been praising God. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So the Sanhedrin get together and it's, they would gather in a, in a half circle where they would sit on different levels so that they could see each other while they're talking. But it's good home court advantage for the Sanhedrin because they're all looking at John and Peter. John and Peter are, feel smaller. They're looking down on John and Peter and the man who was healed. This is home court advantage also because it's Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, here are these Galileans, these fishermen that don't fit in. They've, since the time they were little, have been told that they don't fit here. They don't belong here. They wouldn't have been invited to this. This is a scary moment. This same moment in Christ's ministry caused parents to disown their son for fear of the sanhedrin's rebuff they said ask our son we don't know how he was healed we know he was born blind but we want nothing to do with saying how he was healed ask him and they threw the son under the bus under this same pressure luke goes on to tell us who was in the room in verse 6 it says with annas the high priest and caiaphas and John and Alexander. And we know who 
Two of these guys are for sure, one of them probably. Annas the high priest is probably the most honored Jew in the first century. He was not only high priest for a long time, he was, a, he, he was a high priest that from his family came five more high priests. And Josephus and uh, Caiaphas was his son-in-law, and John is probably the high priest that followed. So Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 A.D. Caiaphas was the high priest from 15 to 36 and was Annas' son-in-law. And John, or Jonathan, was high priest from 36 to 37 A.D. and was the son of Annas. And he may have been the, ca the captain of the temple, depending on how you read Josephus, at this time. These are powerful people. These are prominent people. They are also the ones that were on the job when Jesus was crucified. Annas was high priest alone by himself when John the Baptist started his ministry. Annas was considered high priest also along with Caiaphas. He kept that title. Annas kept his title as high priest when Jesus stood before him in John 18. And Annas questioned Jesus as if he had authority over the Lord Jesus. Annas was in a prominent position. He could have made it so that Jesus wasn't crucified. He's got skin in the game. Caiaphas was the high priest during Jesus' crucifixion. He was the one who held the title specifically. There is a reason for these guys to say that Jesus isn't risen. There is a reason to get Peter and John to shut up. Their position that they have fought hard for and held for decades could be lost if they are the ones that killed the Messiah. This is a tough meeting. He's going up against the elite of the Jews who are also trained in how to speak in public, trained in how to argue, trained in how to use the Word of God. And these are a couple of fishermen that are going to stand before him. It says that he made them stand in the middle. Look with me again back at the passage. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what uh, power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, so they place them in their midst or they place them in the center as they all look down on them. They're saying, give us an account. And if there's body language, it's this. Tough sermon to give. It'd be nice if you could have the same amount of people on the other side that are at least in their court. But this is Peter and John and the guy that was healed standing there alone with a bunch of prominent, intelligent, well-spoken honored people looking down on him. So what does Peter do? Well, let's, before we look at what he did, let's consider what he could do. He's been asked, they've been asked, tell us about the name by which you did this. By what power or by what name did you do this? 
what they could have said is, Yahweh. We can agree on that, right? I mean, they could have been real quiet about Jesus for a moment and then gone out and preached Jesus. Would it have been honest to say Yahweh? Absolutely. They could have hedged their bets a little bit. Hey, guys, fellas, I know we're new at this. I know that we don't have a right to speak here and that you guys are people that we've looked up to our whole lives and they could have honored him and they could have said, we're not here to disrespect you or in any way lower your impression of yourself or anybody else's impression of you. But that wouldn't have been true. In verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a deed, a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? That's a significant first argument. I don't know if you caught it already. They've already made their first argument. God fixed. God's the one who healed him. It was goodness. This is a good thing. You can't say that this was done by any other name than, than a God who is good. There is goodness behind this. People don't get healed when something that's evil behind it. So from a demonic perspective or a satanic perspective, you can't say that we did this in the name of Satan or we did, it was a good thing that we did. Jesus made this same argument after healing and they said it was by Beelzebub that he cast out demons. He said, it can't be. House divided among itself will be torn down. It can't stand. He's making the same argument that you can stand when it's a good God who does good things. Being examined, done to a crippled man, and by what means this man was healed, let it be known to you that, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you Christ crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Ouch! I mean, I don't know if it was John or Peter who I mean, if Peter's the one who said this, you know, they're both speaking, but let's, let's say Peter's the one who's speaking at this point. You wonder if John nudged him. Hey, back off a little. You're not only saying Jesus was raised, but you're saying to these guys who were in authority when Jesus came on trial and did that secret thing at night that got him killed and paid people off to cry, cry out, crucify him? That, that sold Jesus out for silver? All of that stuff that was underhanded, he's now calling, a fisherman is now calling him out and saying, you crucified him. How do you imagine this will go for them? And by him this man is standing before you well. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Not only do they say that they crucified Jesus, Nazareth isn't a place to be lauded. This Jesus came from Nazareth. Can you deal with that? That the Messiah came from Nazareth. Which for in the first century would have been looked down upon, frowned upon. 
But yet God raised him from the dead, affirming that he was the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This is quoting Psalm 118, 22 and 23. And I'll read that. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What does that mean? It means that the disciples are saying, Peter and John are saying that you guys are the builders that are building a building and discarded the Messiah, that discarded Christ, that discarded Jesus. And while you're building, your building or your temple or your world or your domain, you came to Jesus and said, I, we don't need this. This doesn't fit in our building. The stone which the builders rejected. We now know who the builders are. The builders are anyone who's building without Christ. And they tossed the stone. And this prophesied But then he says, it has become the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? It's the first stone laid. It's the stone that determines square. It's the stone that determines level. It's what determines all of the rest of the building. You cannot build with Jesus when you're building your temple, when you're building your kingdom. And just add him to your other stones as if that's going to be sufficient. And that's what the first century had. They had this glaring question, are you going to give up all that you have and all that you are to start building with Jesus? And in times of favor, people think, well, I'll just take part of Jesus so I can keep favor. And this is declaring, no, those are rejecting Jesus And the ones who accept him are the ones who build on him as the chief cornerstone for all of their lives. And we are the ones that are building on Christ. So he's quoting the Old Testament, a a psalm that they would have known. And again, incredibly offensive, he's saying to these leaders, you guys are the builders that are building a building that needs to be torn down. You guys are the builders that couldn't see connecting with the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. You tossed that stone. And that group over there in Solomon's portico, there are thousands of people that are laying their cornerstone of their lives in Jesus Christ. And all of their lives from here will be defined by it. This is an offensive sermon, but don't miss... Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a lot here. And a verse that we all should know and have memorized. There is salvation in no one else. The first thing is we have a God who wants to save. He is offering to these who rejected Jesus. He is offering them salvation right now. Peter is preaching the gospel on a a way field where no one wants to hear it. And he's offering them salvation. 
All right, that's crazy. As if they might turn. Well, in a couple of chapters of Acts, we're going to find out priests turned to Christ. Maybe some in that room became believers. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I don't know if you can be any more clear than that. Jesus came as the Messiah. Jesus came as our Savior, and there is no other way to be saved. And either you're building with Christ, and your life is saved, or you're not. And if you're not saved, there is no other name. There is no other path, and there is no other chance. How scary is that? that he's saying this to people that killed Jesus that can have him, them killed like this. I don't think any of us in this room have ever had such a difficult speech to give. I haven't. I mean, I've had to give speeches where people might not like me when I give it. <laughs> that is not an appropriate time to say Amen. I'm expecting children and wife to keep that one under control. <laughs> Fat chance. <laughs> but catch the very end of it. There's no, salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John turned it here. Peter and John are now saying... We're just as guilty as you. We need a Savior just like you. We're not standing here saying, you need to be forgiven for what you did to Jesus. We're standing here saying that Jesus came to save you and me alike, and we stand here on the same footing before this offer by which we must be saved. There is no one closer to salvation than anyone else based on works. In fact, for those who have spent their lives trying to be pleasing to God, in some ways, it costs them more because they have to give up all that work they did in order to trust Christ. Proclaiming Christ in adversity. I'm building this argument as if this is the beginning of the church having to preach the gospel in difficult environments. And that we have not had to deal with anything like this difficulty. But at this point, there is still a public affirmation towards the work of Jesus Christ that is given some degree of power in Luke's 19, 47 to 48, and 20, 19, and 21, 38. In these passages, whenever we think of the, the word people, the people, they are considered favorable towards Jesus. When we look at the gospel stories, there are times when the people are a little scary because they kind of like that Jesus is sticking it to the man. They may not be followers of Jesus, but they're sitting there, and finally the Pharisees are getting their just desserts. And the people are kind of liking what Jesus is saying. So even though they may not become disciples of Jesus, they're like sitting back eating popcorn saying, look at the Pharisees get it. 
They're finally getting it. And what happened is that Jesus would preach and teach at many times to a favorable audience. He was also called friend of sinners, which meant sinners thought this is cool. We have somebody on our side. So for a long time, Jesus felt that favor. Here in the beginning, people is used five times in the passage that we're studying today. Every time, it's about how they're favorable towards the message of God. So outside of the Sanhedrin, the people are still thinking, this movement of Christianity is kind of cool. But here's the bad news. It ends here. By chapter 6, the people hate Christians. The people want Stephen killed. And later on in Acts, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, they hate him. And yet he preaches. Why do I make a big deal out of that? Because I think that for the first time in America, we're starting to preach not on a home field advantage. For the first time in America, Christians are not looked at favorably. And following Christ doesn't get you ahead in business or in politics. In the 1980s, I mean, I don't think there was a president that hadn't said he was a Christian. Now to say you're a Christian doesn't necessarily stand, help you get your presidency. And I'm going to argue that God builds the church in a hostile culture. We have nothing to be afraid of. This is nothing new. It might cost us more to follow Jesus. And we may find out who's really following Jesus. But that's okay. May God build his church. We also might find that many more people come because our faith is put on display. Oh, how I wish our faith would have been put on display during COVID. Oh, how I wish the number one thing that came out of the church was peace and love and the message of the gospel. It's the number one thing coming out of the voices of those who follow Jesus as they proclaim Christ in adversity. Verses 13 through 22, proclaiming Christ after rejection. In verse 13, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they, they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, not, may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God or to, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
The people who are, the Sanhedrin, who are used to people cowering in front of them, used to people not being as smart as them, used to be able to win the arguments, know the scriptures, are silenced. The boldness of Peter and John perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Well, I love those two things together. They are astounding men and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They're not astounding men without Jesus. But with Jesus, these men are radically changed. Oh, how I wish people would say that of me and of us. Astounding he's been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That's a cool moment. They don't know what to say. And you can think about that moment from a we win, they lose. Isn't it cool that our fisherman is standing up to you and preaching with confidence and you don't know how to respond? But I don't think that's the coolness of the moment. I think the coolness of the moment is there is God-ordained silence for them to consider what they're about to say. Don't miss that God is offering and has been offering and will continue to offer salvation in no other name to us. And sometimes he ordains silences for us to consider. What is it that you believe? Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and that we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, not spread, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. All right, so... Let's just, for a moment, take a look at what bad shepherding this is. We acknowledge that God has done something amazing through them, but so that God may do no more amazing things on this temple mount, let's do all we can to get him to shut up and to stop this. And I, that's throughout the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Again and again, if they would have ever stopped and said, hey, who are we fighting against? Because you see it in the next chapter. They're going to ask that question. Don't find yourself fighting with God. What if what they're saying is true? What if this miracle is a sign that we were wrong? What if we're supposed to repent? And the Spirit of God is giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do that very thing as he does with us as well. What shall we do with these men? We know that a notable sign has been performed. Okay. Dude, you may want to just stop there and listen to your own words. Through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. They're Goal is to deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them 
to speak no more to anyone in this name. They came at this from a position of wanting to deny and wanting to put it down. And I think that is the human condition before we believe. The human condition is to deny and is to push it down and is to say, no, I'm good enough. No, I'm happy enough. No, I don't need Jesus. They're kind of weird anyway, those people who follow Jesus. (laughs) Some of them weirder than others. (laughs) And I'm the weirdest of the bunch. (laughs) That's right. So as they... (laughs) Well spoken. That was it. We love the sound of children, do we not? And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding... Oh, I'm sorry. I missed some stuff. (laughs) Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter, this is kind of important. I don't want to miss this. But Peter and John answered them, What is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God? You must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Once again, let's consider counseling Peter and John on what they should do at this point. They've already given the gospel. They've already stood up for their faith. This is a real win. They've told them to stop saying it. They can just shut their mouths and say nothing. They don't have to say that they will stop. They don't have to say that they will. They speak up and say the dumbest thing you could say if you want more adversity and rejection. They say, you tell us if it's right if we should listen to you or God. Saying that what you're saying right now is not of God you religious leaders who are judging us, who have been in power for decades. Everybody comes up to you and says, Rabbi, what does the law say? Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? This is about as offensive as it gets. And then they use a double negative. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard To say clearly, you can't. I mean, you have to kill me to shut me up. I have seen the risen Savior. He has radically changed my life, and I am not going to stop telling people about Jesus. Kill me if you want to. Amen. And when they had further threatened them, I wonder how that went. I mean it, guys. We're really going to be hard on you. You better stop. And they let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. There's the people again. These guys are afraid that the people won't like them, while the disciples don't care if the people like them. They just want them to know Jesus. That has not been my story for a lot of my life. I have been too concerned about what people think of me. They let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. They saw this as the act of God. 
Why is this so important right now that God is, God is telling us this? They're seeing God at work building the church, advancing the gospel, and God's using persecution and rejection to proclaim Christ. He's building the church in a hostile culture, and they're saying that they're praising God for the opportunity in this kind of environment. Has that been our attitude for the last two years? Has our attitude been, thank you, God, for the privilege of proclaiming the gospel in this environment? Or have we been tempted to say, God can't use a time like this. Look at the culture. It's so lost. We've got we to huddle up and hide because that world out there is dangerous. And they don't even like us. And if they don't like us, then... I'm not telling them the gospel. I don't like you back. And here they're saying that they're praising God for what had happened. And I wonder, are we? For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Proclaiming Christ in adversity is followed with proclaiming Christ after rejection. And the truth is they continued to love God and others more than themselves after being rejected. They didn't fight for their rights or their own protection. They fought for the person who was listening. They're saying this to grab the high priest Annas, who is one of the most honored Jews in the first century. You're missing it. You're missing it. The stone you rejected. And he's a fisherman. Who are we to proclaim Christ? Well, the third point, proclaiming Christ with prayer, is found in verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, through who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed in the place in which they were gathered and together it was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Proclaiming Christ with prayer. They go back to their friends. I don't know if this is the upper room. I don't know if this is the 120. I don't know if this is, I don't know who this group is. But they get back with some of their Christian friends and they tell them what God had done that day. How many people came to Christ and how they were held in jail and put on trial and what they said and how God worked. And their first response is not to say, Peter and John, you're amazing. Their first response is to pray. 
When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They pray, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. They declare that God is enthroned, that he hasn't left his throne, that things seem, they're not going how they imagined maybe. Maybe they thought it would go different, but it doesn't matter. They know God is still ruling and he's enthroned. Maybe they're thinking of Isaiah 37, 16 to 20 that says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living, the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For there were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from this hand, that all the kings of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. He, they, they look back to the prayer of Hezekiah as he is going to be attacked by a greater army and he's got no chance, and he cries out to God and he talks about God being on his throne. He looks at all this that's happening and it seems like the world is going wildly out of control, and there's no way for this to be good or from God. Or you can't even... And he's saying, while this is going wildly out of control and there are evil people that have done evil things in this world, at the same time, God has not left his throne and God is in control and God is going to work this out for good and God is going to advance his kingdom with any of his servants that will join him. God has not left his throne. They're praying a prayer of faith. Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And then they quote Psalm 2. And I, if you've read Psalm 2, I'm a guy that when I was younger didn't like the psalm, some of the psalms. That would have been one of the ones I didn't like. It seemed kind of mean. And here in this psalm, it begins with God looking down dismissively on the nations like an adult who's standing there with a two-year-old. And the two-year-old is demanding his rights. Give me that candy bar. The adult says no. Picks up the two-year-old and puts him in the car seat. And that's the picture of Psalm 2, that the nations rage against the Lord's anointed, against Jesus. And to God, he looks down at what happened to Jesus, and in a moment, he could end that. But he didn't because it was his plan that Jesus would die for our sins and that these very Sanhedrin would be witness to and given another chance because he loves them and he loves you and me. It isn't with disdain that he looks down. He looks down and there's a comical moment almost. You really think you're going to stop God from doing what he wants to do? You really think 
when you counsel together that you're going to get a nation big enough or an army big enough or a political plan big enough or an argument big enough that you're going to stop God from his plan? And here they're praying back to God this psalm that says, they may persecute, they may reject, but you are on your throne and they are nothing to you as far as standing up to them. We may not be able to stand up to them, but you do, God. They go on to describe in their prayer in verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. But make sure you don't miss 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you think that in 2021, God has stopped predestining what would take place? Do you think God fell asleep at the wheel? Do you think God didn't know when he started our church in 2014 that he would give us land and we'd pay it off in the middle of COVID and we would see this steady growth and now we would see steady decline and we don't know what God's doing, but who is on the throne? And who's nervous? It's nothing to God to build or retract and do whatever he wants. And we trust that God is on his throne and he is predestining what will be accomplished next. And we want to be serving him, proclaiming Christ. And that's just how they pray. They Pray that God is on his throne and that, yes, people are fighting against what Jesus was doing, but God turned that for good. And the very actions that they were doing, God predestined and made it so that he could offer to those people who crucified Jesus salvation. And he could offer it to us. In verse 29, they pray for something for themselves. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Okay. What would we pray? Honestly? Lord, give me my comfort back. Lord, take the persecution away. Give the church a time of peace so it can grow. Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I don't know what God's about to do. I don't know God's plans for us. But I know that he's on his throne and he's building his kingdom. And I know that you, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we together can serve him. And we can speak boldly and we can, the church can flourish in difficult times. 
And I'm not talking about the bridge now. I'm talking about the church. The church can flourish in difficult times. In fact, we may find from heaven's shores that some of the best times of our life were the times when God pressed us and we had to decide what we believed. I think the church is being sifted. I think the church is being pressed. I think Christians, for the first time in my lifetime, have to ask the question, am I willing to lose a job or lose favor or lose friendships for the name of Jesus? There is no other name. under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. We can do no other than preach Christ. The home field advantage illustration I heard while with a group of pastors. And one of them heard that another pastor said, this is the first time as preachers we are not on the home court anymore. And it was said with an element of dismay. And as I drove away, as I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think, that's not where we end. We end trusting that God is good and that these times were hand-picked for us, the church. And it is our season to stand up and declare that Jesus is our Savior. Let's pray for boldness. Won't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I confess I like comfort. I confess I like peace. I ask you for it. I confess that I like it when people like me. But I look at your word and know that you're on your throne and I ask that you would give me, give us all strength by the power of your spirit to risk our comfort, our popularity, to risk all for Jesus. That we would declare Christ with boldness as is our birthright in Christ. It is our privilege to speak the name of Jesus in 2021, in this season. Help us to speak it clearly. Help us to speak it boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.